0: And to some who trusted in themselves as just and despised others, he spoke also this parable. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. At the moment, the very moment of their creation, God endowed the angels with incredible gifts. For example, at the very moment of his creation, an angel starts with ideas infused by God. That might not sound much until we realize what this means, until we realize how incredible an angelic mind is compared to ours. See, although an angel like us can only consider one idea at a time, the angel, when he considers that idea, instantly understands, instantly in a single glance, every single thing that is contained within that idea. Somewhat like we can see all the objects reflected in a mirror. And in other words, in a single glance at one of his ideas, without having to stumble along through a process of reasoning and judgment like we do, an angel instantly and completely understands all the truths contained within that idea, all the possible aspects of the idea, right up to the ability of his capacity to, uh, to know all the consequences and all the conclusions, every single one of them, right up to his ability, his capacity to know, every one of these things in that idea. An angel's intellect is so powerful, he can see so clearly that naturally speaking, he can't make an error. At the level of nature, an angel cannot make an error. Now, if that still doesn't strike everyone here as completely amazing, let's just make a simple comparison. Let's stop for a second and consider one field, the field of chemistry. Just think of all the effort poured into scientific and technological research by chemists all over the world, of all the public and private research institutions, all the research done to determine the properties of elements and compounds, to produce new materials, to come up with new technical processes, sometimes with success. Sometimes with failure, okay? Now, all that, everything we've managed to discover and develop, all of it, all of it that we've developed over centuries of work by mankind, all of it, is nothing. It's nothing compared to what an angel can see instantly by looking at his infused idea of matter. The angel can instantly see to the very degree of his capacity to know all the elements in the universe, every possible compound, that could be made from them, every possible use that could be made of them, every possible technic- technological process, every possible development in chemistry, whether in inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, physical chemistry, whatever. All this knowledge instantly seen, absolutely no errors. And that's not all. In the same glass, right at glance, right up again to the degree of his capacity to know, the angel would also also see all the truths of physics all the truths of metallurgy, all the truths of civil engineering, electronics, and so forth and so forth, instantly, with no errors. We've been struggling along with this stuff for centuries. And the angel can see instantly, with no errors, right up to the very degree of his capacity to know. And we're just touching the surface of what an angel's intellect is like. Okay? The great father and doctor of the Church, St. Augustine, says that the things of the world poured forth from God in two ways. The things of the world poured forth from God in two ways. Intellectually, into the minds of the angels, and physically, into the world of things. So God endowed the angels with incredible gifts, breathtaking intellects, and naturally speaking, the angels were perfect. So how did the angels fall? That's not a stupid question. Think about it for a second. See, at the very moment of their creation, they hadn't yet been admitted to the vision of God. So they fell, some of them. But how can they, given that naturally speaking, they can't make any errors, and they instantly see all the consequences. How did the angels fall? How could the angels fall? St. Thomas answers the question. In order to understand St. Thomas's answer, we'll follow the commentary of the late great Dominican Father Walter Farrell. Quote, I've edited this for the sake of time. An angel, like a man, can consider only one concept at a time. What concept is considered at this precise moment is a matter to be cited entirely at the taste of the particular angel. And this precise power lies the key to the solution of the mysterious sin of the angels. How did that particular sin actually come about? We have a rather accurate picture of the process if we can imagine the glamour girl of the year, looking her very best as she prepares to step out of her room, stopping, as she naturally would, one last approving glance and standing transfixed by her own beauty. So the angels, considering their own beauty and perfection, were enchanted. Then they stopped, captivated, refusing to let their minds consider the future, supernatural end to which that lustrous natural beauty was ordered. In this sense, they wished to be like God, Nothing could be more beautiful, nothing more perfect. They would be sufficient to themselves, placing their happiness, their final end, in themselves, to the scorn of the supernatural happiness, which was the beatific vision. The splendor of the angelic beauty fascinated them. They refused to look beyond it to the infinite splendor of the vision of God. The glamour girl's rapt admiration of herself could hardly be morally serious. But in the angels, this fascination was a deliberate mortal sin. It's true, it's no imperfection in the angels not to consider this or that idea. Generally speaking, just as it's no sin in a Catholic to refuse to wonder what day of the week this happens to be. But if the Catholic fears this may be a Friday, and he refuses to wonder about it, lest he discover he can't eat meat, he sins. So too with the angels. With them, it is an imperfection and a sin not to consider this or that idea when they're obliged to consider it. The whole thing was deliberate. The angels directly and expressly willed the consideration of their own beauty. The lack of consideration of the vision of God was willed indirectly and implicitly. They put themselves in the position of a man who refuses to listen to his own faults and the limitations because he's so heartily in love with himself. Close quote. Now sometimes we hear that the fall occurred after the angels were put to the test by having the mystery of the Incarnate Word or the Immaculate Conception revealed to them, and some of the angels refused to honor or adore this revelation of our Lord or His Mother. That's just another way of describing the same refusal, the same rejection of the supernatural life willed by God in favor of their own natural greatness because both the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception are supernatural mysteries. The point is that by embracing and basking in their own natural greatness, the angels that sinned, the demons, rejected the supernatural greatness to which they've been called. They refused to remain in a situation which included a common life, which included a supernatural communion with other rational creatures, rational creatures with a natural dignity and powers far, far below the spectacular powers of the angels. Creatures composed of a body and soul, men. So now we have some notion of the first sin, that satanic sin of pride, the sin of angels glorying in their own excellence, the sin that turned these angels into devils and, as it were, created hell, a sin in which they preferred to be alone, folded in on themselves, glorying in their own natural greatness, rather than to be in supernatural fellowship with God and man. Now, with all that as background, let's turn to today's parable of the Pharisee and the publican. In order to really appreciate the force of our Lord's words, we'll start with a little background information on each of these characters. First, the Pharisee. Pharisee was a member of a particular hereditary religious association or fraternity had a total membership, according to Josephus, of about 6,000. It's pretty small. The Pharisee fraternity had four degrees, as well as special vows and obligations. They had a novitiate, too. Special vows and obligations, the two most important of which were, first, to observe in the strictest manner possible all the ordinances concerned with ritual purity, and second, to observe in the strictest manner possible everything concerned with tithes and other religious dues. Pharisees. Second, the publican. Now, the Roman tax system had an interesting way of operating. Today, we'd call it privatizing. Until the time of Caesar, the tax revenues of a Roman province would be auctioned off for five-year periods to joint stock companies headquartered in Rome. They were run by an order, the equestrians, the knights in Rome. That's who owned these stock companies. These Roman companies, who expected to make a good profit, would then employ slaves or men for the lower classes as their tax collectors out in the provinces because they got to farm that province for the taxes. They bid on it, they got the province, then they get to farm it to see how much profit they can make off it. So you can see already how this is going to go given the state of men. Tax collectors collected harbor tolls, import-export tolls, bridge tolls, road tolls, income tax, A head tax on women from the age of 12 to 65 and a head tax on men from the age of 14 to 65, whether you were slave or free. Property tax, which was 10% of the grain, 20% of wine and fruit. Part of this was collected in kind in the produce and part was collected in cash. And sales tax on anything bought or sold in towns. Now these tax collecting employees, you can imagine going every time you come to a bridge, you have to stop and get shook down by these guys and they're not necessarily gonna be fair. And unfortunately, the same guys that run the, the t- stock collecting companies also run the judiciary. So even though you have the right to appeal, you're appealing to the guys that own the corporations. Forget it. You're in trouble. So you can see how popular they were. Anyway, these t- these uh, these guys were known as publicans, the tax collectors. After Caesar, then they became direct employees of the government itself. That made them even more hated. Now they're minor officials directly associated with these heathen rulers. Okay? So the rabbis hated publicans so much that they ranked them in the religious writings with harlots, heathens, highwaymen, and murderers. So now you see the social status of a publican. Okay, so we have a Pharisee, someone who's got this real great zeal for his religious duties, and a publican, someone who's regarded at best as a common criminal. What does the Pharisee say when he goes up into the temple? Oh God, I give thee thanks that I am not as the rest of men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, as also is this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, St. Augustine, the great bishop and doctor of the Church, comments on this passage, quote, I, the Pharisee says, am the just man. All others are sinners. I am not, as the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I, the Pharisee says, am unique. This publican belongs to the rest of men. I, the Pharisee says, am in no way like this man because of my just deeds by which I am not an unjust man. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. But what did the Pharisee ask of God? Search his words and you will find nothing. He went up to pray, but he had no desire to ask God for anything. He wished to praise himself. And it was not enough to not ask God for anything, but only to praise himself. Besides that, he also wished to insult the other man praying there. Close quote, St. Augustine. So here's a Pharisee, a man who's been given the very great blessing to be a member of what was, right up until the crucifixion of our Lord, the one true Church. And only a member of the one true Church at that time, he's also been given the great graces not to be an extortionist, to apparently not be unjust in his civic dealings, to not fall into adultery, to be able to fast twice a week and still pay his tithes. God has given this Pharisee all these gifts. And what does the Pharisee do to show his gratitude? What does he do? The same thing those fallen angels did at the beginning. Instead of giving the glory to God for all the blessings he's received and asking God to have mercy on his neighbor, he's madly in love with himself. He's enraptured with himself. He's imitating the devils. What about the publican? What does the publican, this man, regard as a common criminal? What does he say? Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican. Here's a guy. Remember, classified with the harlots, the heathens, the highwaymen, and the murderers. He doesn't go up to the temple to tell God what a great guy he is. He goes right up before God and he repents and tells God he's a sinner and ask God to have mercy on him. So what does a publican do? He calls on the divine mercy. And what does our Lord say about the two of them? Quote, I say to you, this man, the publican, went down to his, into his house justified rather than the other, because everyone that exalteth himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Scripture tells us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Pride turned angels with all their spectacular gifts into devils and filled hell. Pride filled the Pharisee and inspired him to imitate those devils. The same kind of satanic pride that filled the Pharisee inspired him to despise the publican is a gigantic temptation, an absolutely enormous temptation for people who are trying to lead good lives in this culture of death. Why is it such a huge temptation? Because when people are trying to lead good lives, when God has blessed them with the gift of the true faith and given a man a desire to avoid sin and lead a life pleasing to him, that man has a radically different outlook on life than the general population. When a fervent Catholic looks around and sees the sort of degenerate, disgusting behaviors, the clothing styles, these so-called lifestyles of this neo-pagan culture of death, when he looks around and sees that, for example, he might encounter a drug addict or a pro-abortion activist, if he's careful, the fervent Catholic might forget one fundamental truth. There, before the grace of God, go I." There but for the grace of God go I. Each and every one of us can honestly say, if he hasn't hasn't already spent part of his life or isn't right now trapped by some horrible sin, each and every one of us can honestly say that if we're good, it's only by the grace and mercy of God. Because without the grace of God, we'd be completely ensnared in all the sewage of this culture of death too. And if we ever allow ourselves to forget that the only reason that we're not currently, right here and now, terrible sinners, if we ever forget that the reason that we're not terrible sinners is because of the grace and mercy of God, if we ever forget that, it's easy to move away from hating these sins. And believe me, we have to hate these sins. Look at what things like drug addiction and pro-abortion activism do to the people involved in them. If they don't change directions, they're going to wind up where they're headed. And that's frightening. We have to hate that. We don't want anybody to go to hell. We have to hate sin. But if we're not careful, it's easy to move away from hating that kind of behavior to imitating the Pharisee, despising the poor sinners who are in that way. This problem isn't so common for penitents, people who have had a major conversion from life of sin, but it's a special danger for the young, and other people that God has so far spared from getting into serious trouble. And if we allowed ourselves to get that far, it won't be long till, by the just judgments of God we find ourselves plunged into some terrible sin. In his comments on Galatians 6.1, St. Alphonsus says, quote, The Apostle Paul tells us that in correcting sinners, we should not treat them with contempt, lest God should permit us to be assailed by the temptation to which they yielded and perhaps to fall into that very sin which we were surprised to see them commit. We should, before we approve others, consider that we are as miserable and as liable to sin as our fallen brethren. There are two special dangers here. One regards to purity and other regards to faith. In regards to the special dangers of purity, St. Thomas points out that, quote, the man who is fettered by pride and does not know it The man who is fettered by pride and does not know it falls into the sin of impurity, which of itself is obviously disgraceful, so that through this sin he may rise up again humble. Impurity is a punishment for pride. We each have to be very humble here. The fact that impurity is a punishment for pride is true for nations as well. We're a proud nation. That's why we're drowning in a tidal wave of impurity. In regards to the special dangers of the faith, what was true with the Pharisee and the Publican is just as true for each one of us today. We have to be careful that we don't fall into a trap of thinking something along these lines. Oh God, I give thee thanks that I am not as the rest of men, contracepting, heretics, associating with bad company, watching bad movies, wearing immodest clothes, as also all these other cafeteria Catholics. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Don't ever think... Can't happen to me. Can happen. Happened to some of the angels, and they were perfect. Happened to Adam and Eve. They were perfect. We're not perfect. And the playing field we're on is a lot rougher. And Satan has his plans for the pious, too. Don't ever think it can't happen to me. Don't ever think that. This kind of talk that sounds somewhat like what I just said is pretty common. We've all heard it. The devil has his plans for the pious too. we got to be careful. It's true we've been given a gift that's greater than all the natural gifts given to the most outstanding angel. We've been given this priceless gift of the true faith with an infinite value, a gift of the faith, a faith without which it is impossible to please God. But we better not get proud and arrogant about it because in the first place, None of us did anything to deserve this gift of the faith. And in the second place, every one of us has sinned and offended God so that the reason we hold the faith is only by his mercy and his love, his great mercy. We've offended the very gift giver. Don't ever think it can't happen to me. The devil has his plans for the pious. We need to be humble, so before we close let's consider briefly some practical advice on how to fight our pride by growth and humility with well, brief ideas on prayer and works. Prayer. great doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, says, quote, We shall never acquire true humility unless we raise our eyes to behold God. Looking upon his greatness, the soul sees better her own littleness. Beholding his purity, she is the more aware of her uncleanness. Considering his patience, she feels how far she is from being patient. And fine, turning her glance upon the divine perfections, she discovers in herself so many imperfections that she would gladly close her eyes to them. Close quote. So we should really ponder the greatness of God in prayer if we want to grow in humility. We should beg God for humility. We could pray at the litany of humility. Let's put it in the bulletin. I'll keep it running the Bolton off and on periodically for some months so that everybody can cut it out and put a little copy in your missal or by your bed on the nightstand someplace. Pray that. Humility is the foundation of other virtues. It's not the most important virtue, but it's foundational. That's why Our Lady's the greatest saint. She's the most humble. Works. Taking most of these from St. Alphonsus. Number one, be careful to not brag. Don't boast of anything. Number two, since without the divine aid, we can do nothing. We've got to keep that in mind. Without the divine aid, we can do nothing. Be careful never to confide in our own strength. But we want to strive to live in continual and utter distrust of ourselves. In other words, we want to place our trust and confidence in God. We don't want to trust ourselves. That's the first rule of spiritual life. Put our trust and confidence in God. He's not damaged. We are. We can rely on him. He'll help us out. We might mess up, but he won't. Okay? Number three, if we fall, we shouldn't give way to despair or anger. Instead, we should humble ourselves, repent, and then with a stronger sense of our own weakness, that's the one thing we can learn from the fall is humility. Huh? With a stronger sense of our own weakness, we should throw ourselves into the arms of our Lord. To be angry with ourselves after having committed our sin is not an act of humility but pride, which makes us wonder how we could fall into such defect. What do you mean, how could I do that? I just did it. You know, when people say, how could I do that? Well, you just did. I mean, you know, all you have to do is do hit rewind and think about what just happened. We all do it. Getting mad about it is just pride. What did you expect? The miracle is we're not worse than we are. That's the marvel that we're not worse than we are. It's the great mercy of God. So we want to cooperate with his grace. And don't be surprised when we fall, but repent and turn God with renewed zeal. Four, should we ever see another one, someone else, commit a grievous sin Take care not to indulge in pride, nor be surprised at his fall, but pity his misfortune and tremble for yourself. We don't want to play the Pharisee role. Pity his misfortune and tremble for yourself. Say a prayer for him. Five, we want to renew our devotion to the Most Blessed Mother. Okay? Let's close with a few quotes, a few thoughts from that great book, Humility of Heart. Quote, God banished angels from heaven for their pride. Therefore, how can we pretend to enter into heaven if we don't keep ourselves in a state of humility? In paradise, there are many saints who never gave alms on earth. Their poverty justified them. There are many saints who never mortified their body by fasting or wearing hair shirts. Their bodily infirmities excused them. There are many saints who are not virgins. Their vocation was otherwise. But in paradise, there is no saint who is not humble. Close quote. In paradise, there is no saint who is not humble. The beginning of humility is to realize that we're proud. In paradise, there is no saint who is not humble.